When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Writing middle grade, writing for kids who are in third, fourth, fifth, sixth grade, that's just like the sweet spot for school visits. Uh, you do occasionally talk to a, somebody who writes young adult who's moved into middle grade. So they've been going to high schools and talking to high school students, and then they come talk to uh, kids in fourth and fifth grade, and they're like, oh my God, I'm never going to go talk to teenagers again in my life. This is so much better. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, June Thomas. And I'm your other host, Ramon Alam. Ramon. The voice we just heard belongs to Stuart Gibbs, who is a writer of middle grade books, a term I need you to educate me on very soon. But before we get to that, I noticed from your excellent Twitter feed that you seem to be on a bit of a spring cleaning jug right now. Does that fever extend to your creative life? I think it's mostly insofar as it's a form of denial or distraction <laughs> from that creative life. I I do have a couple of pretty big projects that I'm meant to be working on. It's a very familiar pattern of behavior. Rather than deal with my work, I have to get really involved in organizing the Tupperware drawer. You know, it's sort of a classic distraction. <laughs> Perfect. So who is Stuart Gibbs and what age group are his books aimed at? So Stuart writes middle grade novels. You know, think of those fat paperbacks that are for kids who are old enough to read solo but really still too young to care about the kinds of things that teens want to read about. I think it's a very particular sweet spot that both of my boys happen to be in right now. Mm. And are they fans of Stuart's work? My younger son and I have read a ton of Stuart's books together, um, including all of the installments of a series that he writes about a zoo called Fun Jungle. Um, they're mystery novels. We've read all of them, including the brand new one, which is called Bare Bottom, which comes out this week. And he is a big fan. And it's like maybe like just incredibly corrupt of me to want to cover this thing that my own child is a big fan of. Mm -hmm. um, it really won me some parenting brownie points to be able to get Stuart Gibbs on the phone for an interview. <laughs> well, forgive my very profound ignorance of childhood development schedules, but are Stuart's books intended for kids to read by themselves or are they for kids who are still being read to? I think that's a really good question, actually. You know, both of my boys, they're 11 and 8, they're old enough to read by themselves. But with Stuart's work in particular, these are books that I have read aloud to my younger son, Xavier, at night, right before bed. You know, they're not written to be read aloud the way that illustrated picture books are, but they're not written not to be read aloud. Yeah. You know, a, a teacher in a classroom could read these to their students over the course of a week. Xavier and I read for about 30 minutes before bed every night. And, you know, these are really good stories. They really hold your attention for that half an hour. I love to hear that because I know that you have, you've mentioned several times that you always read before bed. So I love that you're actually reading multiple times with multiple different members of your family. That's a really lovely picture. 
Yes, one of the particular risks of that, though, is that reading aloud makes me incredibly sleepy. It really <laughs> primes me to go to bed when the kids go to bed, when in fact I stay up for like three or four hours longer than they do. So it's really a challenge. But Stuart's work has brought a lot of happiness into my household, which is really like the best and all you could ask for writing for children. You know, <laughs> Xavier and I, like I said, we've read the Fun Jungle books. Stuart has another series called Spy School, which is exactly as it sounds. It's about a boy <laughs> at boarding school that turns out to be a, an academy for um, FBI agents. Xavier and I are currently reading the first installment of a series about a character named Charlie Thorne, who is a genius 12-year-old girl who is recruited by the CIA. You know, we read these books, we talk about what we read the previous night, we talk about certain subplots or certain details, <laughs> we sort of revisit like every evening we sort of recap what we read last night i'm pretty well versed in stewart's work at this point yeah i bet i would kill to hear some of those literary discussions sounds really lovely um before we get to the interview though i also want to mention that slate plus nicks will hear a little something extra from your conversation what will that be well stewart talked a little bit about what's on the horizon for him so we're breaking news here on Scoop. Working about the books that he's working on next. And I also handed the mic over to my son, Xavier. I let him play podcast host. And speaking of which, June, he's going to send his invoice in this week. Okay. Do not, under any circumstances, miss that. And why would you? When it's so easy to subscribe to Slate Plus, you'll get exclusive members-only content, zero ads on any Slate podcast, bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Dear Prudence, and you'll be supporting the work we do here on Working. It's only $1 for the first month. To sign up, go to slate.com slash working plus. All right, let's hear Roman's conversation with Stuart Gibbs. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. So, Stuart, your first book was published in 2010. So I'm so curious to hear briefly what you were doing in your adulthood prior to becoming a writer of books. I, I was actually, as I was struggling to become a writer of books, I was working as a writer of screenplays. And uh, so I, I did find a way to, to write. Uh, I, uh, writing books had always been my dream. And when I was a kid, I was tracking down agents and, and submitting my books to publishers uh, with, with no success. But uh, I realized there were other ways to try and uh, be a professional writer. So when I was in college, I, uh, I worked for uh, television news. I wrote for a local newspaper. Uh, and then I decided to give uh, screenwriting a shot. So I moved out to Los Angeles and uh, was able to you know, sort of pound the pavement, meet the right people, uh, get jobs uh, writing screenplays. 
But the uh, film business, uh, as many people know, uh, is is a very strange business. You can uh, actually make a living, but have very few things actually come out. And uh, when my son was born, uh, he was about two, I was sort of had this moment one day where I thought, you know, one day my son's going to say, what do you do for a living? And I'll be like, I, I write screenplays that don't get made into movies, uh, you know. And, and so I thought the time sort of had come to try uh, writing a, a book again. And uh, I, since I was repped at a, 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 my agency that handled my screenwriting also uh, had a book division. And uh, I should say that I, I was actually thinking that uh, I was going to write books for adults. It wasn't until this particular agent, my agent Jennifer Joel called, uh, and the very first conversation I ever had with her said, hey, have you ever thought about writing middle grade? That I kind of mm. went like, oh, uh, mm -hmm. I guess... I guess I could do that. Yes. So, so it, that's so interesting to me to know that it hadn't occurred to you prior to that first book. And I just want to say, so that first book, it's called Belly Up. It's a mystery set in this sort of combination of zoo and theme park in Texas. That theme park is called Fun Jungle. My younger son and I have read all of the books. Um, we're big fans of it in this house. And it is a book for young readers. It's a book for what we call middle grade readers. It sounds like it was your agent's brainstorm. Did you ever conceive of yourself as writing in that space? Well, I, when I wrote movies, a lot of the time I was writing like family movies, we would call them. And, and a lot of the time I would have an idea for a movie that people would say to me, oh, that sounds like uh, it's a movie for kids, even when I had thought it was a movie for adults in the first place. Uh, there was mm -hmm. a classic where I had thought about doing a comedy set in the American Revolution. And people were like, oh, for kids. And I was like, why would that be for kids? And they say, well, you know, you learn about the Revolutionary War in elementary school. And I'd say, yeah, but it, it's still a war. <laughs> you know, it's not like a fun war where, you know, people were fighting with cream pies or anything. Right. So, so I would have these ideas. And, and one of the ideas I've been playing around with forever was this idea about trying to do something set in a zoo. And, Every time I tried to do something set in a zoo, people would be like, no, that's for children. Belly Up was originally, even in the book version, I had thought, I was thinking it was it would be an adult mystery, that, that, the, mm. uh, that the zoo vet would be the guy who suspected that this uh, hippopotamus was actually murdered and investigated. And the moment Jennifer Joel said to me, and I thought about writing middle grade, I thought, wait a minute, that, that crime is the perfect crime for a kid to solve. Because... Mm -hmm. Uh, there is no hippo homicide division of any police force in the country. The moment the kid goes to the police and says somebody murdered the hippopotamus at the zoo, they're going to say, you know, they're not going to take him seriously. And so he's going to take it upon himself to go investigate this th himself. When you're writing a screenplay, a family screenplay, you're writing that screenplay for the director and the actors to bring it to life, right? But when right. you're writing a book for a young reader, it, it's going directly into the hands of an 8-year-old, a 9-year-old, an 11-year-old, and they're interacting with it personally without the intercession of a director who's a 45-year-old person. So what's the difference in that particular exchange for you artistically? When I write for... Um for uh, my, my target audience, I really try not to write down to them. I really just try to write the book that I would want to read myself. I've never been that cautious about, uh, you know, how the, big the words I use are or anything like that. Mm. So I, I uh, just try to sort of engage my readers uh, on the level that uh, I, I would engage them if I was talking to them in person. And 
you know, I mean, there there might be like there there are certain topics that I can't write about for that age range, but I didn't want to write about those topics anyhow, really. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, I'll give you one story though. I I wasn't when I wrote Belly Up there. There is uh, there is an issue that that uh, the hippopotamus in question was a particularly unsanitary hippopotamus, and hippos have this uh, habit, uh, or, or it's actually a, a behavior where they called dung showering, where they mm. uh, fire a stream of feces and spread it out with their tails. and And I didn't put that in the first draft of the book. And then I was talking to my first editor, and I said, I don't know if this is the sort of thing I should be writing about for middle school or, or, you know, fourth and fifth grade boys. And he said, no, no, that's exactly the sort of thing you should be writing about for fourth and fifth grade boys. So I said, okay, there, here we go. And, and I just wrote that in. You bring up an interesting point, actually, about gender and the reader. Because the hero of Fun Jungle is this intrepid young man named Teddy Fitzroy, who my kid really loves, who is a boy who knows a lot about animals and cares deeply about animals. You have a boy who's kind of a proxy for a young James Bond in a series you've written called Spy School. I mean, you have written a great girl protagonist in another series, Charlie Thorne, right, who is like a girl genius CIA agent. I guess my question is whether there is a way that the market distinguishes between like, this is a book for boys and this is a book for girls and how the artist kind of responds to that or whether that's an old fashioned way of thinking about books. Uh, it's not really an old fashioned way. Sadly. Um, when I was hired to write, when, when my publisher bought belly up, the idea was that they needed to get boys reading books that, Girls were reading books in this space, but there were not that many books for boys. I think some of that does come from the fact that girls are maybe a little more open-minded about the protagonists that they're willing to read about. That, that uh, girls don't seem to make a huge delineation between whether or not the protagonist is a girl or a boy. But at least at the time, the perception was that the boys were doing that and that we, we needed more books uh, with male protagonists. Uh, and I can't guarantee that this hasn't changed somewhat yeah. over the time that uh, Belly Up has come out. But certainly, when I was when I first started writing, that was the thought. And I, I mean, I, there there were sort of those two reasons that I, I two reasons that I made uh, my my uh, protagonists were all male. Uh, one was to try and attract boy readers, and the second was that I uh, was a boy myself at one point, so yeah. I had some idea of of how they yeah. thought. But in targeting boys with my books that didn't really preclude girls from reading them girls were yeah. perfectly happy to read my books uh and they don't seem too bothered about the idea about reading a book with a boy who's a protagonist yeah and you know little girls that age are as amused by a hippo showering feces on a human being as little boys are you know Absolutely. some things are some things have <laughs> a t an appeal for all <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> So you have two kids yourself, and I, you know you mentioned a kind of impetus toward book writing upon becoming a father. But I'm just curious about like the ways in which your kids affect the work that you do. Is it like a market research thing, having two kids in the house, or or are you really writing from a perspective of your own memories of being a kid yourself? Uh, no, it, I, I'm, I'm definitely drawing on a lot of my own memories, but having the market research team in the house has been uh, really, really beneficial. Uh, to talk about the Fun Jungle series, 
very quickly, my children started to influence that series because I, I was writing about animals. And so uh, in Poached, which is about a kidnapped koala, there is this sort of subplot involving sharks. And that came about because my son was very into sharks at a very young age and said, you know, people uh, are afraid of sharks and they shouldn't be afraid of sharks. And uh, he had a whole theory that uh, uh, great white sharks had not killed as many people as people thought, that maybe bull sharks were to blame, but, but that certainly we should sort of demystify the, the danger of sharks. And I thought, well, okay, that's really important to you. I'm going to work that in. And then when the time came to write the third book, uh, as I was trying to come up with the idea, um, you know, I, I'd sort of done like, oh, a murdered hippo and a kidnapped koala. And they, there, were, there was like, there's something a little bit silly about those ideas. And my family and I went to the San Diego Safari Park, which at the time had four of the remaining eight North African white rhinos on Earth. And now there's only two left. This, this yes. uh, species is about to go extinct. But my son was was so moved by the idea that this species was going to go extinct, he, he said, oh, you have to write about rhinos and, and mm. poaching and extinction. And I had thought, well, that's, you know, it's kind of a heavier topic there, but if he wants to hear about it, then I guess other kids want to hear about it too, and it'll resonate with them. Mm-hmm. And so uh, he influenced the series that way. Uh, my daughter then, as she grew up, started to uh, influence what animals I, I talked about as well. And then they, they also, they're also part of my editing team. So uh, they get to read a book earlier in the process than most mm. other kids do. Or, or they, don't, they don't have to wait till the finished copy. <laughs> and they will catch uh, continuity errors. They will catch yeah. uh, editing mistakes. They will uh, occasionally catch a, a plot flaw. So uh, mm. they're, they're very important. On my on my team, I don't know what I'm going to do when they age out. Really, I'm yeah. <laughs> it's funny to hear you talk about the complexity of writing a, you know, a plot that is a crime plot that also talks about the extinction of an animal species. Like that's a very serious thing. In the new Fun Jungle book, which is coming out this May May of this year, it's called Bare Bottom. You're doing a similar thing. There's like the fun plot that animates the story, which is about like, did this wild bear somehow accidentally steal this very expensive piece of jewelry? But underneath that, there's a conversation about some like serious things, you know, sophisticated ideas about um, the relationship between white Americans and Native Americans, for example, or the stewardship of America's public lands. And I feel like, as someone who has read these books to my kid, I think part of what's interesting to me is the way you don't avoid these complex topics. It's of a piece with, as you said, like not avoiding hard words. Part of what my job uh, entails is talking to uh, my readers and, and going to schools and, and talking to students and which I did not know was part of the job when I, when I first said, oh, okay, I'll, I'll, yeah, I'd be happy to uh, do a book deal. Uh, but it's this fascinating part of the job. And so th- there have been things I've, I've noticed that certainly kids are able to deal with these topics. But when I first wrote about poaching, uh, and I would talk to kids about it at the school, they would, there was sort of this thing where they could sort of kind of poo-poo the idea and be like, okay, we know that's a problem, but we don't have anything to do with it, right? We, mm-hmm. you know, we, we don't kill rhinos for their horns. We don't import rhino horns. Uh, 
So that's like a problem that other countries have. And then I started to think, but there's plenty of issues in our country as well. And uh, certainly I'm, I'm trying to write for kids all over the earth, but my target audience is uh, very much the kids I'm talking to are here. And so you think like, okay, something like human wildlife conflict, where we're just expanding into, you know, that wild animals are running out of room and everybody's, you know, great with having uh, grizzly bears until one wanders into your neighborhood or, uh, something like, uh, right, like how our national parks were formed. And I love our national park system. I think it's it's one of the greatest things about this country. But when you start to go, oh, wait a minute, like, where, you know, where did that land come from? You know, yeah. people were actually living on it when we declared a national park. Uh, you know, those are important things, some of which I've only discovered in really writing the books myself. And, and when I hit on something like that, I think, well, you know, that's something that kids should know about. And uh, so, and, th and they are always ready to handle that topic. We'll be back with more of Roman's conversation with Stuart Gibbs. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. One of the things we'd love to do with this show is help solve your creative problems, whether it's a question about productivity or a specific inquiry like whether a bear or a hippo makes a better protagonist, anything at all, send them to us at working at slate.com or give us a ring at 304-933-WORK. And if you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's return to Roman's conversation with Stuart Gibbs. One of the other things that was really, really notable to me in this new book is, um, so Bare Bottom, we see a lot of characters who we've met before. One of them is this sort of, you know, minor character who is a kind of, um, he's an employee of this zoo. He's like the suit. He's the public relations guy. And in this book, we understand that he's gay. It's never come up before in the context of any of the books because it's not necessary per those plots. But it, it, something about the plot of Bare Bottom requires the introduction of his partner. And... There's something really incredible to me about that. It would have been utterly mind-blowing to me as a child myself reading this when I was 10 in 1987. But in the context of 2021, it's just the world as it is for young readers. And I think that that's really incredible. Oh, well, well thank you. I, I appreciate that. Uh, you know, it, it certainly has been in... Um, you know, something that's been on my mind as I've been writing the books, uh, and I'll say there's another thing, it comes out from a lot of my readers. A lot of readers are saying, you know, when are you going to introduce LGBTQA plus characters? And, you know, I, I do write books that are for middle grade and therefore not primarily about like the relationships of the kids, right? Um, they they may have crushes or things like that, but but that's not what's driving them. So, I've thought about, well, how do I 
work this in. And, and to me, it just seems like, you know, my kids, you know, we live on a street, there, there are several gay couples on our street. Uh, my kids don't think anything of it. That's just life for them. And, yeah. and so, it, you know, in this day and age to have uh, my protagonist, Teddy, just be like, oh, I mean, it doesn't even make a big deal of the fact that that yeah. Keith Wacker is gay. It's just like, oh, yeah. Pete's here, his his husband's here, and yeah. that's life. You know, it's it's always interesting to me what I've gotten the most pushback on from uh, usually not readers but parents of readers, yeah. and talking about homosexuality is one of them. The other is talking about climate change, and yeah. uh, and what's very interesting about when people are angry at me about talking about homosexuality is that generally the way that they phrase it, it's almost like there's been a, a, a guide to how you respond to this is to say, I don't think your readers of this age should know about this, mm. and but you know, when are they supposed to know that? Right. And, and yeah. so, um, yeah. you're usually not supposed to engage somebody on something like this, but yeah. every once in a while, somebody will write to me and say, I'd love to know what you were thinking. And I'll write back to them and say, I was thinking I would include this because it exists. And, yeah. Yeah. uh, my kids know it exists. It hasn't affected them yeah. adversely in any way of anything. It's made them more understanding and, yeah. and compassionate and recognize that all people are pretty much like one another and it doesn't matter yeah. who you love i mean my kids have two dads so of course that particular mention didn't hold any interest for him because he wants to know who committed the crime that's the <laughs> only interest he has in reading the story is like what's the solution to this particular story well that, that's that's sort of what i'm you know going for there <laughs> is that is that it should just feel like it's just natural right the, right the, it's just the the texture of life itself you know um my son actually had a question you want to play it cameron that'd be great my name's xavier i'm eight years old do you have a question for Stuart Gibbs? Yes. Like, what inspired him to write, like, books about mystery? Like, what inspired him to write, like, like cases that you have to solve? Like, yeah. And, like, when he writes his books, does he know who, like, whoever, like, took the necklace is going to be? Or does he, like, just work his way there and start piecing it out himself? Okay, first of all, Xavier there has, uh, he's an excellent interviewer. <laughs> that, that was so articulate. That's, that's fantastic. I write mysteries, I think, for two reasons. Uh, one is that I've always loved mysteries. I, I, ever since I was a kid, I loved reading like the Encyclopedia Brown series by Donald Sowell or uh, like The Westing Game by Alan Raskin is one of my favorite books of all time. Uh, but I, I read like every mystery I could get my hands on. And I, I think over the years, like, why did I like mystery so much? And, and I'm pretty sure it's because uh, it's a story where the smartest person wins. That mm. the power of, of you know, the person, be it Encyclopedia Brown or in Sherlock Holmes, is that they, they're smart, they're respected for being smart. Uh, they may not really be good at fighting or, or shooting or, or, you know, what, what a lot of movie heroes are good at, but, but they, they can figure out what the bad guys are up to and they can figure out how to defeat them. And so I've always like that and and was drawn to that but also i you know since i write them because that's how my brain works i don't necessarily always set out to do a mystery uh, i did the moonbase alpha series which is set in the very first moonbase i did not intend for that to be a mystery series i was just trying to figure out how to do a story set on the first moonbase and everything i kept coming up with was a mystery and a mystery is actually a very good way to sort of 
you know, introduce a setting. It gives you excuses to go to all these different places in that setting. And it provides a really good structure because you, you, uh, you, you know, the crime is committed and your hero has to go and find all the clues and then solve the crime. And then, you know, maybe there's a little action sequence, but then the story is pretty much over and, and you know where it's going to end. Uh, and so I like that, which sort of leads to the other, uh, uh, Xavier's other question there about, do I know who did it? And I do, I outline everything ahead of time. I believe there may be a mystery writer or two out there who does not do that. Uh, but for the most part, the mystery writers I, I know do plot out the mystery ahead of time, figure out who did it. And I, that doesn't mean you can't change your mind. There have been two cases where I actually changed my mind about who uh, my uh, bad guy was, which meant mm. I, I wrote a mystery so good even I didn't know who did it. But uh, but for the most part, I, I have a very good idea of who did it and I'm working towards that. Uh, and, and that allows me uh, not only to sort of construct the mystery the way I want to, but also to throw suspicion towards all the other characters as well. Well, I, Xavier's going to be thrilled that you answered his question, and I am I am also thrilled to learn that you are an outliner and that you have a sort of methodical approach, although I'm not that surprised because it would seem to me that your work would demand it, because as we've discussed, you're writing a series, the Fun Jungle series, which is all set at the zoo, but you're also, you have these other series, um, one set on the moon, you have a series, um, uh, sort of like a James Bond series set at a school for spies. You have a CIA series. You're bouncing between these different worlds, and it would seem to me like you would have to stay organized. Do you work on these individual books simultaneously? I really try not to. I, I try to only be working on uh, one draft of a book in one series at a time. You know, so I might be working, I might finish the first draft of, of a book in one series and then move on to the fourth draft of a book in another series mm-hmm. and maybe the 10th draft of a book in, the, in another series and then go back to that first series again. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, so there's, there's uh, I'm not really the most organized person in the world. I have, I have yellow pads all over my office where I jot all the ideas down and try to at least have one yellow pad per series or per book. And, and so I know where all the ideas for that one book are. But, mm-hmm. but yeah, I am, I am jumping around between the different series to get everything done on time. Well, it seems to be working. Because, you know, your first book came out 11 years ago, and by the end of 2021, you're going to have 24 books in libraries. Like, that's pretty, you can't really argue with results (laughs) like that. You also mentioned earlier your own surprise that part of being a writer for children is being in schools, is being in libraries, is being available to your actual readers. It's, it's, it seems to me quite different from being a writer for adults. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what that is like and and whether you enjoy that aspect of the job. I, I, I do really enjoy that aspect of it. Uh, I do wonder sometimes, I, I have become friends with a lot of authors uh, who are very outgoing. We figure there's got to be a whole bunch of authors who... Uh, must not do it who became an author because the last thing they wanted to do was talk to people yeah. and so I guess they don't do it but but uh, I actually do really enjoy uh, talking to the students and, and it's it's very fun to engage with them uh, in particular writing middle grade writing for kids who are in third fourth fifth sixth grade 
that's just like the sweet spot for school visits. They're, they're just uh, so engaged. They have such great questions. Uh, you do occasionally talk to a, 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 somebody who writes young adult who's moved into middle grade. And so they've been going to high schools and talking to high school students. And then they come talk to uh, kids in fourth and fifth grade. And they're like, oh, my God, I'm never going to go talk to teenagers again in my life. This is so much better talking to these kids. But that is um, that's certainly an aspect that changed that, that I, I can't do that anymore. But we have uh, all this new technology that happened to have come along just at the right time that I can uh, visit schools. Uh, I can do a Zoom or and I can put my presentation up and I can come to these kids in their own homes. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's not exactly the same. Uh, I missed the, the back and forth interaction with the kids, but it's, it works well enough that there's a lot of thought that maybe this is going just to be the way of the future that, that mm-hmm. we're not going to do away with in-person visits. I don't think, but it just, if I went to talk to a school on the East coast, it's so much easier for me to just, yeah. you know, hop on my computer for an hour, uh, in my office than to jump on a plane and fly. And, uh, so yeah. it, so I don't, I don't think that version is going to totally go away when, once the pandemic's over. I think, I think there is going to be a whole avenue of, of talking to students virtually that, uh, on a regular basis. Younger readers in particular, this is something that I really remember from my own youth. Like, when you love a book, you can read it so quickly, and you just want the next one. You want more. You fall in love with this character or with this universe, and you want more out of it. So, hence the popularity of the series. Like, Fun Jungle, you have, there are seven installments now, right? Yes. So, Bare Bottom is the seventh. So, you even note in the afterword to this book that this book uh, is a departure because it is not set on the premises of the zoo. The characters have, they're in Montana for reasons that are clear as you read the book. Is it hard for you to stay locked into these worlds that you've established? Do you ever want to just write a one-off and like be done with it and leave the characters in the world behind? Or, Well, when, when I first started writing the all these series, I didn't know they were going to be series. So I, when I, when I wrote belly up, I did not know there would be another uh, book in the fun jungle series. When I wrote spy school, I didn't know there would be another spy school. The, the reason we do series is not really because we know that kids are going to, you know, want one and that's good for sales. It's because you fall in love with your world and your characters and you don't really want to leave them behind. And so it's even hard for me now to even think of like what a one-off would be because I, I mm. think you know, the, the most recent series I started was Charlie Thorne. And by that point I was, I was thinking, gosh, I, I I'm going to fall in love with my characters again, I think. And mm. uh, I, I, and I'm, you know, I'm going to do all this work to create Charlie in the world and everybody around her. And I'm probably not going to want to say, no, that's it after, after book one. Uh, which is exactly what happened. So I, I'm not I'm not against that. In, in fact, in a weird way, the, the, the one of the hardest things I ever had to do was I, I did have to end the Moonbase Alpha series. And when I had created that one, that was the first time I actually created a series and knew it was going to be a series. When I wrote book one, I knew that I, I, I had the cloud to have a book two and three. And I thought, oh, I'm setting this on the moon. It's got the potential. This could be like a 20 book series for all I know. And in my quest to make 
uh, it, it, that series is set in the, in the near future, in 2041, and I was trying to be as realistic about space travel as possible. And in, in the quest to be as realistic as possible, I made the world really kind of limited. And mm. this moon base is very small. Wherever you go on the moon, it's just moon dust and, and lava rock. It, it doesn't really change. Uh, and I, got, I started book three and thought, uh, this is actually going to get really repetitive if I keep going beyond book three. And I called up my editor of my publisher and said, I, I, I got to end this series. And, mm. and I, I was unhappy to do it, but I, I just thought, um, so when you were talking about like saying, okay, well, there's these, there are some constraints. Yeah. That, that, that certainly happened in that series, uh, in the fun jungle series, like, yes, keeping it at fun jungle is a bit of a constraint, but there's a whole other world out there and there's all yeah. sorts of things that can yeah. go wrong. And yeah. so uh, you found a good workaround in bare bottom. <laughs> I will say like it didn't, uh, it doesn't disrupt the logic of the series, even though it's not in the place for which it is named because you have all the same characters. And at any rate, my, my son was wrapped. Um, Stuart, it was really such a pleasure to have you on working. Thank you so much for your time today. Uh, it, was, it was a pleasure talking to you. Uh, please give my best to Xavier. Yes, yes. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance— then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Ramon, it was wonderful to hear from your son, Xavier, and to hear that he clearly has strong opinions about Stuart's book. I didn't realize until I heard this interview how much time writers of books for kids spent visiting schools and talking to kids about their work and reading and so on. That really makes me think that writing for children is a special vocation, like the talent and the creativity that all writers need still has to be there. But there's an extra requirement of being able to interact with readers who happen to be young people. Was that something you were aware of before you had kids? 
No, it isn't something that I knew about. It's it, but you're right. You know, writers for adults were asked to sell our book. You know, by tweeting, by sitting on panels, by attending conferences, doing events at bookstores and libraries. Writers for kids do all of that stuff as well. But the thing that they do that writers like me don't is they go in, into schools and into libraries and they talk directly to their readers far, far more often than people like me do. You know, that is if they want to, if they're adept at it. And I think clearly from talking to Stuart, he is good at that. You know, he's a dad and maybe that has something to do with it. But you can just kind of tell from our conversation that Stuart is the sort of grown up who can have a conversation with kids. Totally. I know your last book, the wonderful Leave the World Behind, came out when humans were not interacting in person. So no in-person events for that. But you've done them for your other novels. Asking if you enjoy doing readings and hearing from readers feels too loaded a question, but let me ask instead, what's the most fun thing about those kind of book events for you, the writer? You know, I do think it can be rewarding. And, you know, I have to say it's kind of fun <laughs> to see people who care about your book. You know, you can't you can't ever count on that. And the notion that there are real people, real, real readers out there who are not part of your immediate family, who spent their attention on your work mm -hmm. is really satisfying. But I definitely can see how it might be especially invigorating for a writer who's working for younger readers. You know, kids, they just, they love deeply and their attention can be even more galvanizing than the attention of an adult reader. And kids are so funny and they're so curious about such unpredictable things, you know. Like with Xavier, often when we were reading Stuart's fun jungle books, you know, they have a lot of detail about animals and the natural world. And Xavier would interrupt me to tell me the animal facts that he happens to know. <laughs> and it, it's so charming when you see young minds at work. And I bet if you write for readers that age, you find that really lovely. Yeah. Something Stuart said made me feel guilty for having been a horrible cynic for years, which was that he doesn't write series for reasons to do with sales, but because he falls in love with the world and characters that he's created, and he doesn't want to let them go. I absolutely believe him. And what a wonderful statement about how much fun it is to create a world that you then get to wander around in too. It's so funny that you would mention that because I noticed that as well. And I also really believe him. Even in our conversation, which was very grown up, <laughs> you can tell that Stuart has this enthusiasm for his work that's kind of childlike in its purity. In the best possible way, you know. And in his new book, Bare Bottom, for example... You can see Stuart pushing the boundaries of the fictional world, trying to broaden the scope so that he can stay with these characters. You know, and I just don't think you could do that if your sole motivation was financial. Yeah. I was really fascinated to learn from him that the two biggest drivers of complaints by parents are the presence of LGBTQ people in the book's universe and discussions of climate change. Honestly, that second item surprised me, did it you? You know, I can understand it. You know, for starters, corporate forces have been extraordinarily successful at framing climate change as a political issue, which it, it plainly is not. And parents have a desire, an understandable one, I think, to protect their kids. But this, I think, tips really quickly into condescending to them and shielding them from the reality of contemporary life, whether that's racism or homophobia or climate change, by suggesting, oh, kids don't need to worry about such matters. 
But, you know, raising kids in ignorance of such things is just malpractice. Yeah. There's something really poignant about thinking of kids aging out of a certain kind of book. It's one, of course, of many such acts that they do over the years. But it's also kind of sad because certain series and characters are really important to some kids. Are there any books that you read as a small child that still stick with you? Oh, gosh. So, so many. I mean... So for me personally, books like Harriet the Spy by Louise Fitzhugh, you and I have talked about this before, is a very important touchstone. Um, Judy Bloom's work was really important to me. And now sort of seeing my kids do that mm. is very affecting. You know, my younger brother had a baby a few months ago and I pulled several of our favorite picture books off the <laughs> shelf and I, I put them away for my nephew. And it was so sad. <laughs> You know, I'd done the same thing with our board books, you know, quite a while ago now, sending them off to friends or to secondhand shops. But, you know, June, in truth, part of the reason the house is so messy right now <laughs> is that there are many board books I just couldn't part with. And they're downstairs and they're still in my mind. You know, you read these books over and over again before your kids are able to read. And they become much more than just physical artifacts. They really become narratives that mean something, at least in my life. Yeah. So as a father, you do something that I, a non-parent, don't do, which is read and buy a lot of children's books. But even non-parents like me need to buy gifts. Are there any that you want to recommend for know-nothings like me? The truth is that it's really no different than with books for adults. You know, I could tell you to read my favorite books, quiet, modern novels in which nothing happens. <laughs> no. But the recommendation really means more if I understand what you want out of a book. And kids have their own tastes. You know, some like mythology, some like animals, some like science, some like comics. And there are great books for readers of every age on every one of those subjects and more. And the expert is really just as close as the library or a wonderful kids' bookshop like New York's Books of Wonder. Mm. Have you ever thought about writing for kids? I, I have, but the truth is I don't know if I could do it. I think sometimes we assume that the comparative simplicity of a child's intellect must mean that writing to entertain them should be really simple. But I, I think that's really wrong. I think it's a real skill. And some people are actual geniuses at this sort of thing. Beverly Cleary comes to mind, Judy Bloom does, Jason Reynolds, or for younger readers, people like William Steig or Myra Kalman. When you talk about Ramona Quimby, you know, for Beverly Cleary to have made that book is as significant as for Hemingway to have written his books. It's not just something anyone could do. That is so true, no doubt whatsoever. Listeners, we hope you have enjoyed the show. If you have, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Then you'll never miss an episode. And yes, I'm going to give you a Slate Plus pitch. Slate Plus members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn, for which there is a brand new season that just started this week. But I also hope you would like to support the work we do here on Working. It's only a dollar for the first month. To learn more, go to slate.com slash working plus. Thank you to Stuart Gibbs for being our guest this week. And as always, enormous thanks to our producer, Cameron Drews. We'll be back next week for June's conversation with the cartoonist and graphic memoirist, Alison Bechdel. Until then, get back to work. Hey 
guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.